we're going to go ahead and get into um, where you guys have left off in, in the book of Mark, chapter 9. Um, if you haven't been in church for a while, um, or if you have, the book of Mark is still found in the same spot. Um, you go to the New Testament, it's Matthew, Mark, the second book, and go ahead and turn to chapter 9, and we'll start in verse 42, and the passage will be up here on the screen. And I'm going to tell you how we're going to go through all this so that you can have it outlined. What I want to do first is, even before we go through the outline, is to equip you with a few questions. The reason I want to equip you with a few questions is because uh, my dad, right before he died, he gave me some of the most profound, um, I believe, advice that I've ever known um, in my life. And he said this, he, he said, if you ever quit asking questions, you've got two options. You're physically dead or you're spiritually dead. And so I say that to you because I think that what happens a lot in Christianity is that you can pursue answers so much. And now again, hear me, we do want answers. But the issue is that so many times we fail to ask questions. We lose the wonder of who God is. It's almost like this mentality of like, let's get our arms around God. Let's get him figured out. And then let's kind of walk through, through life with him alongside of us. Because I've got him figured out. And let me go ahead and maybe dazzle some people with the information that I have in, head, in my head. And that's not how it is. So with that being said, whenever you go to the text, one great question to ask is, first and foremost, who does God say that he is in this passage? Who does he say that he is? Because here's another fear, is that we are in an age in the church that a lot of people immediately practical application, they immediately go, what does this mean for myself? And they miss God. Either that or God's placed underneath them. How is God only going to help me and lift me up? And that's idolatry. It's sin. But So we first ask this question, who, is, who does God say He is in this passage? And then from there, once we go through the passage, then we ask, um, what are some sin issues He might be pointing out to me? What are some ways that He's saying, Good job, son. Good job, daughter. What are some ways that he's doing that? So anyways, I just want to give you that real quick. And before we jump into Mark chapter 9, verse 42, I want to give you a quick overview of also what's going on here in Mark. Um, if you're not familiar with this, the disciples are with Jesus. And what the disciples are thinking about here is a political realm, they, uh, reign. They're thinking that Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem and just, like, kick the mess out of some folks, get on in there and take over, and they're going to wreck shop. That's basically what he's saying. Modern-day translation. And so they're sitting here going, all right, sweet deal. I'm getting in on that. Why? Because it's going to be, hey, dude, look at me. Look at my status. Look at all the things that I'm doing. Look at who I am. Look at this big risk that I'm taking up front. And then eventually people will say, yeah, he said, drop your nets. Follow me as fishermen, but maybe in a few years, people are going to say, look at that powerful guy. Look how amazing he is. It's this whole political realm, and Jesus comes in with a completely different economy of thinking. He comes in, if you turn um, into your word with me, over to chapter 8, Mark, he says this, in verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, here's, here's the economy of Jesus. He says, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What a question. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And then you go over to chapter 9, starting in verse 34. Um, we'll, we'll skip up to 33, and he says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What, what are you guys discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone's going to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then he took a child up in, up in his arms. And, and, and picture this. I mean, the, the God-man brings in this child and he says here... Hey, he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking the child in his arms, so imagine him either standing up and holding him or sitting down and putting him on his lap, and here's what he says to them. Whoever receives this one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So he's saying he receives me and the Father. And if you go on in verse in chapter 10, and that's past the passage that we're talking about, but I want you to see this emphasis that Jesus is having on children. And he says in verse 13 of 10, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And again, remember, in their mind, they're like, Hey, let's get to Jerusalem. Let's be big dogs. And Jesus is like, All right, come here, kids. Come here, children. And the disciples are watching, and the disciples are like, we don't have time for these nitwits. That's what he's saying. I don't know if they say that in, their, in the language back then, but he, that, that's basically saying, come on, get going. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And why is that a deal because let's go to our passage now. Verse 42, we're going to read through the whole text and then we're going to go verse by verse through the text and then we're going to go through some practical applications. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You know what I thought about this week? What if I was the kid that was sitting on his lap and Jesus just said that? I heard Jesus say to his disciples, you want, to, you want to cause one of these to sin? It's better for a millstone around your neck. It'd be a strange um, view to see. Um, and then as this child is sitting there with him or up in his arms, he says, and here's another deal, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. 
Better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's go back up to verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into, into the sea. Now, now look at the context of what he's talking about. Because again, remember, he's saying here, if you, if you go, take your eyes back up to verse 36, when he took that child and put him in the midst, he's saying this, that whoever receives this child, you're receiving me. And you're receiving the Father. So the, the antithesis or the opposite of receiving this child is to cause this child. But, but, but it's also important for us to see this. He's not only just talking about this child here. In that context, children are the low of the low. They're not just going to sit there and say, okay, as long as I don't cause this one child to sin, I'm good to go. That's not what they're thinking. They're going, oh my goodness, you want me to actually count everybody as equal? Are you serious? You want me to actually take time to be around people? We're on the way to Jerusalem. We're going to be kings. What are you doing? And he's saying, yes, there is no such thing as the least of these from the viewpoint of God. That's what he's saying. Okay, there's no such thing. So, one way to unpack this modern day, okay? Say, and I thought about this, some, well, a couple examples, because here's one of my my problems. I have this this thing that some people call uh, road rage, and um, I can um, get a little... uh, Hacked off at some drivers. I'm honestly, I'm I'm working on that. It's not something to to boast in and stuff like that. But but here's the deal: is that if somebody goes really slow in front of me or cuts me off, it's this huge uh, of just going, Wah! you know, honking at them and stuff. And like, are you serious? You know, I I, I don't float them any fingers or anything like that. I don't do that. Um, but but uh, um, unfortunately, in my head, I end up always degrading these people. I always end up going off in these people. I always end up elevating myself above these people. And then I go on, and then I could be going on on my way to having a coffee with somebody and, and talking about theological things or some issues that are going on in their life, or maybe they're talking about me, they're talking with me about some issues that are going on in my life. And do you see that dichotomy that I just created? Going down the road, and there's this image of God there. Because whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, every single human being bears the image of God. And I'm going down the road, and I just absolutely take this guy to the side. And just, I can't believe you got in front of me. And then I go, now, sitting down in coffee, how great is God? You see that? You see that least of these deal that came in my head? That, 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 that would be an example of a modern day deal. Or maybe it's at work for you. Maybe you can put on a front with a whole lot of people, but then at work, or maybe at work you're known as the Christian, 
Or maybe you're not known as a Christian at all because you want to somehow contextualize um, and you want to make sure that there's not as big of a separation between you guys. Maybe that's what's going on. But the reason why I say that is that so many times, whether it's in the workplace or whether it's home, we end up having this whole least of these syndrome. We end up either elevating ourselves above people or we just don't even profess the greatness of Christ. And so here in this whole deal, he's saying, if you want to cause somebody to sin, if you cause anybody, if you cause, in modern day context, a co-worker, if you cause your wife, if you cause your mother, your father, anybody to sin, the guy that's driving in the road next to you, this is a pretty stiff word that he says, it's better to have a millstone around your neck. Are you serious, Jesus? He doesn't think like we think. Yet that's what he says. It's better to have a millstone around your neck. Let's go on to verse 43 through 48. Some of you thought we were probably going verse by verse, and you're like, hey, Vernon, uh, we got to get out here on time. So hey, it's all good. Um, we'll keep going. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled with two hands than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to believe or for you to enter life lame with two feet to be, than to be thrown in hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He transitions here and talks about this aspect of not causing others to sin and then he turns it in on ourselves. You see this? He's saying, look out, don't cause anybody else to sin, but here's the reality. Personal holiness your personal walk with God is a huge, huge deal. If there's anything in your life, get it out. That's, this is the message that he's given. This last weekend, we were all hanging out, and I asked these folks if I could share this um, example. Um, a, a bunch of us um, friends went to this cabin this last weekend for a reunion. And last night, the guys were hanging out and talking about what's the Lord doing in your life, and the girls were talking... And um, one of our friends uh, it was talking through this aspect that he and his wife have gone through two miscarriages. And it's just been a devastating time. It's been an awful, awful time. But the husband said this to us around the campfire. He said, he said I had to come to this point where... I had to quit being afraid of feeling, and I had to quit being afraid of fear. The reason why I say, well, why he said that is because he came to this point where he said, I had to choose, am I going to feel the pain of losing a child and be closer to God, or am I just going to cloak myself, let myself be cold and be further away from God? This is a huge deal because there's a lot of people that will just shut off their emotions because they're scared of their emotions. They will shut off anything inside of them, any kind of affections. And, and, and so this guy was saying that it, during the first miscarriage, he, was, he had huge problems with his emotions. He was like, I, 
I shut that off. I just, I, I just became cold. I became from God. But the issue why that's such a big, big deal is because the God of the universe, that child from the point of conception matters to the Almighty. That's why. So the focus needed to be, God, what is your view of this child? What is your view of this child? To put it in the words of, of, of this guy, um, he said, I had to come to grips that, that, that God was still in control even in the death of my child. What a statement. What a statement. He had to choose right here. It's the same choice. He had this sin issue in his life, and he had to sit here and go, am I going to engage it and be closer to God? Or am I going to carry around, so to speak, the two hands and the two eyes and the two legs and be swallowing hell? Am I going to be doing that? Second point I want you to see here, he's giving this compare and contrast. He's comparing right here the temporary possible pain of obedience. That's what he's saying. He's saying if something's causing you to sin, cut your hand off. Something's causing you to sin, cut your leg off. If if your eyes are causing you to sin, gouge them out. So he's saying compare this temporary possible pain of obedience with the everlasting pain that's reaped from disobedience. Do you see that? Compare it. Now, if your main focus on this passage was this. Jesus doesn't actually want me to cut off my foot. Jesus doesn't actually want me to cut off my hand. Jesus doesn't actually want me to take out my eye. You're missing the point of the passage. If your mind immediately went to that, that's not what he really wants me to do. You miss the point of the whole thing. Because the point of the whole thing was that at whatever cost, get sin out of your life. Why? Because sin will eternally kill you. Charles Spurgeon said this. He says that those who focus on eternal realities will never be lethargic. Those who are constantly focused on heaven and the new earth and the reality of eternal hell are never going to be lethargic. You're never going to be. Why? Because you're going to realize that you were created for eternity. Let's keep going. Verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This passage um, was it's fairly difficult. Well, it was fairly difficult for me. I'm a pretty simple guy. Um, but in verse 49, so he says that for everyone will be salted with fire. I sat there for so long going, what in the world is he talking about here? We're talking about not causing the least of these to sin and personal holiness. And now he's saying that everybody's going to be salted with fire. What in the world is going on here? So I did some studying, and here's what the conclusion is, I believe. Salt is for purifying. You have to see that. 
Every single person is going to be, quote-unquote, salted with suffering. That's the fire. The question is this. Will the salt keep its purifying element in your life? Or are you going to waste your suffering? See that? For everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will have the opportunity to let your sufferings purify you. Are you going to let them? Are you going to let them? If you're someone who doesn't waste your suffering, salt will also have another benefit. It'll preserve you. That's what salt does. It preserves you. If you don't waste your suffering, your salt, this salt is going to preserve you. Therefore, the purifying and preservation elements of salt need to be seen as great visions from God. He's saying every single one of you guys is going to suffer. Don't waste it. He goes on to say, excuse me, salt is good, but if the salt's lost its saltiness, that's when we waste our suffering. How will you make it salty again? The point is that you can't. Therefore, have salt in yourselves. And he goes on and he says, be at peace with one another. Quit fighting. Quit fighting. Be so consumed with God that those that offend you, this is, a, this is also, we can hear this echo all through Matthew, but especially in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, return reviling with blessing. Love your enemies. That's what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to line somebody up and like 50-yard 50, 50 field goal, boop, right in their head and just tee them off. That's not what he's saying. And yet so many times we do that and we go and we're, we're going that way and then we come back around and we hang out with other friends and then we're like, and that person, that hurt my feelings, aren't they a punk? And then we sit there and start talking about how big of a punk somebody else is and you try to build up yourself by uh, being uh, deprecating of somebody else. You ever been involved with that? If not, um, amen. That's good. Let's move to some practical applications. Number one, I think that through this passage, one of the main things that he's teaching us here is this. Hate sin. Hate it when you see other people sin. Not to the point where you hate the person. Hate what they're doing. Not only hate that, hate even the possibility of you leading somebody down a sinful life. For parents, um, I don't know uh, if, if you've ever experienced this, but I've experienced it with my two boys. And um, seeing, especially my oldest, Titus, five years old, Seeing him replicate your sin is a really devastating thing. But he's going to live in such a way that you would never cause anybody else to sin. And then he says, hate any kind of sin that tries to cling to you. Hate it. I want to give you a, a um, definition for sin. This is a one-word definition given by a guy named D.A. Carson. And he says this, sin is idolatry. But sin is. Idolatry is anything that takes the place of God as being ultimate in everything in your life. But here's the point of why you hate sin. 
Sin will kill your joy. Sin kills joy. A guy named G.K. Beale had this quote, and he said this. He said, We become what we worship, whether for restoration or ruin. You become what you worship, whether for restoration or ruin. If you are trying to hold on to some sin issue in your life, you will manifest that. You will become that. If you want to try to hold on to anger because of some issue that's happened in your life, you will be controlled by that. It will happen every single time. You will become like that. Yet, if you hold to Christ, you will become like Him. You will become a person that clings so much to Christ and that will restore you. You see that? It's a twofold deal. If we're just going to talk about sin, 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 we have to see this. That that is going to be an egocentric, self-centered pursuit. But we'll get to that at the very end. Number three, suffer well. Every single person will be purified through suffering. Suffer well. So many times... I'll give you a a great example. So I was in Sudan. um, My wife and I had to start two orphanages and two schools in southern Sudan, Africa. And one of the things that's amazed me so much is how much these people suffer, yet how much joy they have. And I'll give you this example of, it was the first time I was there and I was teaching through 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles. And... I started talking to them about this, and it's like blank stares, and I was like, oh, it must be a weird accent, you know, and I'm just not making a whole lot of sense. It kind of happens often, and um, and stuff. And then I was like, they've never heard this before. So I take a step back, and I'm like, um, let's start with Adam. Any of you guys here heard of Adam? Adam who? No, nobody heard of Adam. Fair enough. You're a Christian. All right. We go down and go down, and I tell the, further and further biblically, you know, David? Don't know. Ask this one pastor, or this pastor raises his, hands, his hand and he says, Sir, um, I only have one book of the Bible. Like, yeah? He said, Yeah. The book of John. I've been preaching out of it for the last 16 years. It's like, whoa, 16 years. This guy, just so you know, doesn't have a wife or kids because they all died in the war. And I tell them, here's the deal. There's 65 other books that make up a whole Bible. And not only that, we have one here for each of you. Here's what happened. They, they did it right, you know. They, they took those Bibles and they said, peace out on this class. And they ran outside and they started dancing around. I mean, they went nuts. They went crazy. It's these people who have suffered and suffered and suffered, and yet they're saying, God, I want to know you, and you brought somebody along to give me your word. Let's go celebrate. They didn't sit there and say... That's great, I didn't have this before. This stinks. Yet so many times that's what happens. We view ourselves to be the victim of life. And the whole time God is saying, I want you to know me more in that suffering. I want you to know 
me more. Number three, love others. That's what he's giving us here, no matter what their status is. We need to love others. If we are going to constantly be people who try to rank, or if probably uh, you you guys would never have fallen into this um, situation, Um, possibly though, so I'll bring it up. Have you ever been around somebody that's supposed to be like a really, really important person, and you start acting a lot differently around them than you might around like your wife or husband or brother or sister or something like that? And maybe even to the point of where, like, your brother or sister is a famous person, they try to come over and you're like, you know, you kick them right in the knee and stuff so you can spend more time with the person and things like that. And you try to elevate yourself and you try to totally focus on yourself and what's the best for you. If you're locked into this mentality in life of waking up from your bed and all you think about is yourself, even in the context of how do I know God more today, and that's your only question in life, you're still going to miss it. The reason why, the reason why is that you're still putting yourself at the top. You'll never be able to love somebody properly. Why? Because you're always going to use people. You'll only use them so you can feel better about yourself. Instead, the question needs to be, God, how much do you love this person? And meditate on that and let him love that person through you. And that person may never change. Maybe it's a stranger. Maybe it's a family member. And maybe that family member is a person that's got the, the worst things going on in their life. And I'll give you a personal example. We grew up, in a, we referring to my sister and I, grew up in an abusive home. According to a lot of people, we have a lot of reasons to be able to sit here and say, woe is us. I'm going to blame my parents. I'm going to blame my parents. Yet Jesus is coming in and saying, I love you so much. While you were yet an enemy of me, I died for you. I love you. Now rest in my love and let that love love them. Why? Because I'm not going to expect anything in return from them then. Well, how do you do this? How do you do all this? All right, Vernon, like you hear about a thousand and one sermons, maybe not a thousand and one, on hating sin, suffering well, loving others. These are such generalized things. Well, here's how you do it, I believe. By enjoying God. Let me read you a quote from Thomas Chalmers. Um, He says this, The best way to disengage an impure desire is to engage a pure one. The best way to expel the love of what is evil is to embrace the love of what is good instead. My fear is that we don't see Christianity this way many times. Many times it can be, just get sin out of my life. So sin-centric. But the issue is, is if we we read Galatians 5, starting verse 16, he, he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
This word gratify is, he's saying, you're not going to feed the desires. So he's saying also there, what? There are desires that are bad that are coming up and trying to get you. And there are desires that are good that you can have a choice. Which way are you going to go? Which way are you going to go? And so the only way that you expel sin out of your life is by focusing on God. The only way that you expel sin out of your life is by absolutely being filled with the Holy Spirit and saying, God, fill me to the point that there's no room left for this sin. That's such a different focus of being so focused on my sin that all I want to do is sin management. And so therefore, I'll take like five steps to get rid of sin out of my life. You know, and and, and it's these things that, man, maybe I get down to the third step and I botch the whole deal up and then I'm like, dang it, I must think it as as a person and I'm this and I'm this and I'm this. And you realize how high I, 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 we build this tower, this idolatrous tower, worshipful tower called self. So many times. And the whole time he's saying, just know me. Know me. I promise you that if you know me in a personal relationship, then you will not focus on leading others to sin. You will not focus on cherishing sin in your life. You will not be afraid of sufferings in your life. You'll know that every single single one of those instances is a call to worship. Now let's... Finally, very end, relook at this passage. I put it in some words, um, just so you know. The um, the point was to repeat it a lot. But here's this passage again, kind of put to my own words. Love God so much that you realize every action and every person counts. Hate the idea of causing someone else to sin. Therefore, pursue loving God with everything. Hate the thought of cherishing sin in your life. Therefore, pursue loving God with every st- with everything. Understand that we will all suffer. Therefore, let's not be people who waste these opportunities and in fact use them as a call to worship. Finally, have a deep love for others. Let's pray. Papa, I come to you and I pray now that you would use your word in our life. God, you tell us that um, the ultimate end in life, the ultimate focus in life is to be in relationship with you and then when we're in relationship with you, that nothing can shake us from Your hand. In fact, in Romans 8, You tell us that neither death or life, nor angels or demons, nor persecutions or famine or sword, nothing can separate us from Your love. So I pray that for us. I pray that for anybody that's here that does not know You personally, does not have a personal relationship with You, I pray that You would save their soul, that You would let them know that You've died for their sins and that they only have to believe in faith that Your perfect life and perfect death is all that they have in life to be able to ultimately offer back to the Father to say, 
Jesus is the only way I can be here. Pray for anybody else here who has been leading others down ways of sin and even cherishing sin in their own life. That you would, according to Romans 2.4, that your kindness would lead them to repentance, that your kindness would crush them. God, I pray that you teach us to suffer well. God, teach us to be focused on you no matter what the cost. We love you. In Jesus, it's by your powerful, powerful name I pray. Amen.